I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and today on Fifth Emission, gentrification of Chinatown's storied banquet halls. But first, a final chance to tell us what you think about our Chronicle podcasts. We have a survey up at sfchronicle.com slash podcast survey. This is a chance not only to help us direct our coverage, but also to win a $100 gift card. We want to know what you think. Food writer Janelle Bitker is with me today. She recently wrote about the demise of some longstanding Chinatown banquet halls. These are giant restaurants that have been key to the culture of Chinatown, but some have been closing and replaced with restaurants that cater to a larger and wealthier crowd, people who more often than not do not live inside the storied neighborhood. Janelle, welcome to the podcast. So tell me, can you can you explain what role banquet halls have historically played in the history of Chinatown? Yeah, well, Chinatown doesn't have a lot of big buildings. It's pretty much just these banquet halls. So the banquet halls are sort of unofficial community event centers. They host um, not just some weddings and Lunar New Year banquets and red egg and ginger parties, but they're also doing association meetings and community meetings and politics politics meetings. meetings. It's, it's all happening at the banquet halls. Yeah. So these are places where um, people have gone for generations and sometimes members of the same family will have their wedding receptions there. So why are they suddenly turning to hard, turning on to hard times? That is the big question. Um, the overarching narrative we hear is that it's the wedding industry's fault, basically, um, that second and third generation Chinese Americans don't want to do the traditional Chinese banquet wedding. They want to have Western weddings and parks. They want smaller weddings. So that's what a lot of people are saying. The Chinatown leaders I spoke to think that's not telling the whole story, that banquet halls still serve many other purposes. But um, there are also huge restaurants in San Francisco. And as we've been reporting on a lot this year, huge restaurants in San Francisco are closing because they're expensive. Yeah, absolutely. So which ones have closed in recent years? So um, for many years, there were five and now there are only two. Um, So Gold Mountain closed, um, Four Seas closed, and then Empress of China is the most recent to close in 2014. And these were places where, I I mean, I know as a, when I started covering news in San Francisco, you would go to them and there'd be every Politico at events. Uh, There's a ton of food and it seems very endemic to the culture of this neighborhood that's really resisted gentrification or at least more so than some of our other neighborhoods. Each of those banquet halls, did they all give the same reason for closing? The reasons are a little squishy. Um, they didn't give stated reasons in as far as I'm aware of. And the the Chinatown community leaders I spoke to said some of them were personal. They weren't all financial. You know, people just want to retire. Um, but it's, it's hard to imagine that finances didn't play a role. Right. So, as I said, Chinatown has really resisted a lot of the gentrification. And one of the reasons for that is the buildings there tend to be owned by people in the community. And it, it's very unusual. In fact, I don't even know if I know of a case where, you know, a white person, say, from the outside has been able to buy one of these buildings. Does that mean rents have stayed low there? Is Because that certainly is driving some restaurants out of business. 
In some cases, um, you have local landlords that want to keep Chinatown Chinatown and they keep their rent stable. Um, there's a really touching story about you at Lee, which was a longstanding, pretty famous Cantonese restaurant in Chinatown that just changed owners. The owner wanted to retire. He gave it to a longstanding employee. And that employee, um, you know, an immigrant with not a ton of money, um, was able to take it over because the landlord actually lowered the rent to keep it as you at Lee. So there are these amazing examples, but I think there are also some landlords who see opportunity. These have also been places where um, newly arrived immigrants can find places to work. And Chinatown has historically been a place that takes in a lot of new immigrants. They get on their feet, they have a community, and then they may move out to one of San Francisco's other neighborhoods. Is that still um, something that newly arrived immigrants can look for for work there or or are they finding jobs elsewhere? Uh, no, that's very much still a pathway in Chinatown. Chinatown still brings in a lot of new immigrants um, and the restaurants, especially the big banquet restaurants, have been um, big employers of those communities. Um, these are people who don't have a lot of money and they don't have English language skills and they can work among 40 of their peers in a big banquet hall. But um, I think a lot of the smaller restaurants are hiring them as well. Yeah. Some other restaurants in San Francisco, you can see the postings outside the windows. They're looking for dishwashers. They're looking for line cooks. They're, uh, they're looking for everything. It's hard to find employees in San Francisco. Is that a factor for these restaurants or do they still have a pretty solid employee base? I don't think that's a factor with Chinatown restaurants specifically, actually. Um, the employees are really loyal in Chinatown. You hear about people who stay with the same restaurant for 30 years. Um, so, yeah, Chinatown's probably the only neighborhood where probably, that's not a factor. Probably the only one. Are the people who live in Chinatown frequently frequenting these banquet halls as much as they used to? That's a good question. I think Chinatown residents are definitely frequenting Chinatown restaurants, but um, there has been a rise in spicy food restaurants, Szechuan restaurants, Hunan restaurants. Those are sort of following the immigration patterns right now. We are having less Cantonese-speaking immigrants and more Mandarin-speaking immigrants. And so the newer restaurants that are opening are serving foods from those regions, and those are kind of the hot spots now. Um, and these banquet halls are all Cantonese banquet halls. So I think you could make the argument that maybe day to day people aren't going as much to these restaurants just for lunch. Um, but they do still very much serve that banquet purpose. So a few of these restaurants that have closed have been replaced by um I guess I would say more modern versions of it that cater to people who may not ever feel comfortable walking into a traditional banquet hall, but going to China Live is like cool and hip and where you want to hang out. Why are these high-end places taking over and are they successful? Well, they're taking over because they have the financial backing to move into such a huge space. Um, a new immigrant from China who doesn't know anyone is not going to be able to open a restaurant that seats 500 people. It's just not going to happen. So um, when Brandon Ju opened Mr. Ju's, I think that was in 2016, um, the neighborhood was really excited, actually, because Brandon grew up in Chinatown as one of their own. Nothing like that had been attempted before. No one really knew what would happen with 
the high end. It, it now has one Michelin star. Right. Um, Maybe you should explain a little bit mm-hmm. about like what is Mr. Jews yes. like because it's it's a really interesting restaurant, I think. Yeah, it made a huge splash when it opened. There was really nothing like it in the Bay Area and arguably in the country. Um, it was a high-ish end Cantonese restaurant, um, like rooted in tradition, but took a lot of liberties, sort of a Californiafied menu with um, really great ingredients and unusual presentations. And, and the space is beautiful. It's one of the most stunning like interior designs I've seen in the Bay Area. Yeah, it is beautiful. I mean, they still, I I, I went there, I had Peking duck, but mm. it was definitely Californiaized. Cal- yes. It's like if Alice Waters was to create Peking duck, maybe it was very beautifully splayed out and had very fresh things in it. And I wouldn't recognize it probably in a traditional Chinatown restaurant. Right. And it was probably, And it was more expensive. I was going to say three times more expensive. <laughs> yes, about that. <laughs> At least that. So what what do the community leaders think about places like China Live, which are not quite as high end? It's a little bit more bustling. Is is was that also welcomed? They also welcomed George Chen's project. I think um, George Chen also has roots in Chinatown. Um, he's really active in the community. He donates to a lot of local causes. Um, he really cares about Chinatown, and I think for George Chen, he wanted to see. Similarly with Mr. Ju's Chinese food taken really seriously and, you know, you should spend a lot of money on a Chinese restaurant. I think that's a mental block for a lot of people that that Chinese food should be cheap. And um, so he has this huge complex. There's a gift shop. There's the bustling China Live restaurant. And then there's also a banquet hall, which I actually didn't know about until reporting the story. And then there's also um, eight tables, which has a $225 tasting menu and literally has eight tables in it. And... Um, but the community was welcoming of that as well because of all the engagement with the owner, George Chen. And that followed just a year later. I think they were also still wondering, like, well, what's going to happen? But but now it's 2020, and now they feel like they've seen what has happened. And they're okay with those two places, and that's fine. But do they want a third? And it looks like maybe a third is on the way. What do we know about the latest one? Right. So, um Empress of China is going to be replaced by um, a similarly named restaurant, Empress by Boone. And that chef owner, um, Ho Chi Boone, is pretty internationally famous. He's worked at a lot of Michelin-starred restaurants. Um, most recently, he was the international executive chef for Hakkasan, which is this high-end Cantonese kind of fusion-y, kind of nightclub-y restaurant chain that has locations all over and um, he left that, I think, after 17 years or so and wanted to open his own place with his own Cantonese modern seasonal vision. Um, he hasn't given out a lot of details yet as far as what we can really expect from the restaurant. But given who he is, it's probably going to be high end. Um, it's probably going to be 50 to $100 per person. Um, it's probably going to have a great wine list. And it's going to be beautiful. And um, people in Chinatown doubt they're going to be able to go there. I'm speaking with Janelle Bitker about her recent story that dealt with the gentrification of Chinatown's banquet halls. We'll be right back after this. So, Janelle, is it 
Is it possible to have a 900-seat banquet hall that makes money today? I mean, is that just something that's of the past? Or are, are the ones that are left, are they still doing okay? Well, New Asia is doing very well. Um, I heard that they're hosting 300 banquets a year, which is a lot. <laughs> and and part of that is that there's only two banquet halls left. So when these huge family associations come to San Francisco Chinatown and want to host their banquets. They have two options. Some of these family associations are so big that they need to book both places. Um, so New Asia seems really busy. Um, Far East is interesting because they have this lower floor that's sort of a cafe restaurant for anyone. And then they have the banquet hall upstairs. Um, and when I talked to the owner, Bill Lee, he was saying, Business has sort of slowly, steadily dropped over the years, but he still has a lot of banquet business. Um, however, the coronavirus is actually making things difficult right now. Um, there are a lot of fears that there is the virus in Chinatown just because of racism and xenophobia, and um, they're totally unfounded. Um, but he said a lot of banquets have canceled since. Well, we know a lot of tourists mm -hmm. who would come here, like half a million tourists come from China every year, and that has to have an impact in the people who are going to Chinatown and coming in for some of these things, too. So even if it's not the people here worried about catching coronavirus, which you're right, is unfounded, there's just an inevitable impact of tourism being down. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's both of those things. Um, so he told me that because of that, um, he's worried about his business now. The political leaders in Chinatown, they're also starting to wade into this. What are what are their concerns? So I spoke to the deputy director of the Chinatown Community Development Center, which is in a very prominent advocacy organization, and he's taking direct action, actually. He um, filed an appeal with um, the city calling into question the use permit um, for that space. So he basically wants the building owner to get into a conversation with him to talk about what he's planning and whether it's going to serve the community. Does it need to be a restaurant? And and how does how does filing that, how does it force them into a conversation that wasn't being held before? Can you explain just the process? Sure. Well, he was saying that unlike with China Live and Mr. Jews, the owners of um, both the building and the restaurant for Empress uh, haven't been engaging with him or Chinatown leaders. Um, so filing that appeal forces them to have a hearing with the city. Both sides have to come. A conversation has to happen. And has the owner, did you did you get to speak to him or is he refusing to talk to us too? Um, I spoke to the restaurant owner a bit about the restaurant, but once I brought this up, he declined to comment. And then the building owner um, was out of town when I reached out, but he sent me a written statement via email. And he said the concerns are unfounded and the restaurant will reflect Chinatown and serve Chinatown. Did the did the political leaders in Chinatown have any ideas about how to use the remaining banquet hall spaces and how to keep them open? Yeah, they've been talking a lot about it. Just, I think, knowing that for a variety of reasons, even though these banquet halls are pretty busy, um, it's possible another one will close in the future. And they've been tossing out a lot of ideas. Um, one person I spoke to had this idea for a food hall. Food halls are really trendy right now. It could be a good thing for tourists. And he thought, well, we could have this food hall 
with kiosks for every region in China. And that would be really exciting. If that were, would be cool. <laughs> I would go there. I would go there. Um, that would be exciting for people in the city and outside the city. And there could be enough space to have a 300-person banquet hall at the same time. So the food hall could fund the banquet hall in and a way. And maybe use the same sort of space and have it be more flexible. Exactly. Um, there's also talk about various um, sort of community benefit agreements that maybe they could try to strike with the building owner. Um, nonprofit models, uh, worker-owned co-op models. Um, I think they're really trying to think outside the box of what a banquet restaurant could be. Do you, this is a little bit of speculation, but do you think the fact that these banquet halls are closing because they're not as financially viable as they once were, what kind of impact does that have on the culture of Chinatown itself? That's a huge concern. Um, culturally, uh, there are people who... We're born in Chinatown, raised in Chinatown, you know, got good jobs, moved out of Chinatown, maybe moved to Berkeley or moved to the outer Richmond. But they want to take their kids back to the Chinatown they knew. They want to take them to these banquet halls. And if those are gone, that's a huge loss um, just for the richness of Chinatown. But also economically, um, I think we said this before, they employ a lot of the people who live in Chinatown. The people who work there tend to shop and eat in Chinatown. They all sort of participate in this greater ecosystem. So we know, obviously, that San Francisco is a uniquely difficult place for restaurants. It's expensive to pay rent. It's hard to find employees, all these things that we mentioned. But is this an issue just in San Francisco's Chinatown? Because we have other ones in the Bay Area and around the state, around the country. Are other Chinatowns having similar problems? Absolutely. Chinatowns across the country are facing gentrification. Some are vanishing altogether. Um, there was a study in 2013 that said that the Chinatowns in three major American cities um, over the course of 10 years went from having mostly Asian restaurant uh, residents to having a minority uh, Asian residents. So many more white people were moving in and they were opening businesses not necessarily for the Chinese community. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to L.A., Chinatown. Yeah, it doesn't look very Chinese <laughs> anymore, really. It's not. Lots of Korean restaurants. Korean restaurants. Um, last time I was there, a friend wanted to go eat Nashville hot chicken in L.A., Chinatown. Um, the leaders Not I what <laughs> I would have assumed that you would get at a Chinatown, but okay. Very popular spot. Um the, the leaders were really concerned about what happens in D.C. Basically, the only thing that makes... Chinatown in D.C. Um, Chinatown is that they have to have Chinese signage, but the businesses are national chains. They're not Chinese at all. Um, obviously, the San Francisco Chinatown is remarkable compared to other Chinatowns in the country. Um, so they just want to make sure it stays that way. Well, and they're, they were built, you know, as a in a period. Um, they became to be in a time where Chinese people were coming here and facing incredible racism and hostility. And this was a place for them all to gather. I, I guess if you were a glass half full person, you would say that's not as much of a threat anymore. And maybe they've served that purpose. But as you say, they also take away some of that cultural identity too, particularly in San Francisco, which has the largest Chinese population outside of China per capita. So it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. Do any do, do the people in Chinatown see that as any positive at all? I don't think so. But um, I've reported on other 
Chinese restaurants, for example, where they they close because the children went to college and are doctors and aren't going to take over the restaurant. And they view that as a success. So I'm sure for a lot of people in its own way, it's a good thing. An individual (laughs) success, but maybe not an aggregate success. Exactly. And um, a lot of people in Chinatown eventually moved to the East Bay. And that's kind of how Oakland Chinatown formed. It's a newer working Chinatown. Um, But there, the banquet restaurants have also been closing over the years. And instead, we're starting to see them pop up deeper in the suburbs. Um, Alameda, San Leandro, Dublin. um, That's where the Chinese populations are moving. So there are still banquet restaurants around. (laughs) We write a lot about the importance of supporting restaurants and businesses in San Francisco that we don't want to see go away. Banquet halls are a little unique because, you know, I I don't culturally go to any of these. How can I and other people help support these businesses in Chinatown that that aren't necessarily a you go and have dinner with your family kind of place? Well, with these banquet halls, you can just go and have dinner with your family. You can go have lunch by yourself. You would just be at a very large table. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, there's nothing stopping you actually just from going. They don't only do banquets. Um, That said, if you wanted to go, there are great and really affordable places to feast with friends and family. Um, If you go and you can fill a table for 10, they do these big multi-course dinners and you can usually get away with $40 per person for like eight ginormous courses. That's awesome. And when we go, because I think we should go next week, what should we order? What's your favorite thing to order at one of these banquet halls? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, When I was a kid, I was really into um, Mongolian beef, actually, which is not actually Chinese. It doesn't sound like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's Americanized Chinese, and it's served at all these places because they do the Cantonese and the Americanized Chinese thing. But I actually had um, a Chinese banquet dinner uh, before my wedding for my rehearsal dinner, and we ate very well. Um, We had... You know, prawns and and chow mein with beef and a whole fish and whole chicken and whole duck and it's a lot of protein. That's not good for vegetarians. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Well, now you've made me hungry. Thank you very much for coming in and uh, hopefully we get to see these banquet halls continue to exist and thrive in San Francisco. Thank you. Thanks to Janelle Bitker for being with me today. Thank you, King Kaufman, for producing this episode and thank you for listening. Fifth Admission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 